Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome once again to the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me as always is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. What's new, Sean? Hey! Our bat cousins Andy and Jeffrey had never seen the Holiday Nights episode of the Batman animated series, and their mind was blown when I told them that it was adapted from a comic book special, and that there's even a bonus story in that book that didn't make it onto the screen starring Mr. Freeze. I'm glad to hear it. I was just talking to bat great uncle Liam a couple minutes ago. He looks like he hasn't aged a day. Amazing. We are also very fortunate this month to have another guest our bat cousin ward hill terry how you doing today terry hello fellows my bat cousins i brought my special dish i brought my buttermilk biscuits oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right i got two batches i got made with the dry buttermilk and with the liquid buttermilk and i challenge you oh. to taste the difference yeah <laughs> all right well we'll put them down on the table and we'll we'll do a taste test with all the bat cousins in a little bit i will need many helpings <laughs> you will because you got to try all the jams that on birth bought. <laughs> so sean why don't you remind our listeners what this show is all about batman family was a dc comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued detective comics from the dc implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing it into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man-Bat, and even the Odd Man and the Atom. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman Family Reunion. Awesome. So, Terry, before we get started, we'd love to hear about your relationship to the Batman family. How'd you get into the book? Who's your favorite Bat family member? All that kind of stuff. So give us your secret origin. I was born in the 1960s. Batman, like the Beatles, has been a constant part of life. There's just words I've always heard, things I've always known about. I had an older sister, so she would have, I don't know if she'd actually had seen the Batman TV show. She would have been old enough to see it. I didn't even know if we had a TV. But, oh, we did have a TV because I remember seeing the Beatles cartoon. But certainly they would be talking about it at her school. So she would tell me and my little sister about these characters, Batman, Robin, and Batgirl. I knew those words before I knew who the characters were. And then for the next several years, I would try to watch the Batman TV show any chance I could. And we did have a TV, black and white TV, friends. This, this was a very long time ago, you have to understand. We did not have any cable, and we did not get the UHF channels at my house. Ah. So I couldn't watch these all, as much as I wanted to. But anytime it was over a friend's house or my grandmother's house, my aunt's house, and the adventures of Superman. I loved Superman and Batman. Reading comic books was a summertime thing. We'd go to a house up in Maine with some family friends. And on the trips into town, it was very much like our friend with the Mountain Comics podcast. Pick up comics at the general store. In the 1970s, there were so many comic books. Yeah. Affordable, you know, 20, 25 cents a shot. Archie's and uh, 15 million Richie Rich titles a year. And <laughs> The Harvey comics, all that stuff, as well as the, the Marvels and DCs and Gold Keys and Dells and all that stuff. First, it was Archie's and then superheroes when I could. I started actively collecting in 
summer of 1976 because I got a copy of Ragman number one at the general <laughs> store. And I said, this is a first issue. This is important. Because I had already known I some other books I had read. I had the uh, the Pfeiffer book, mm -hmm. the great mm -hmm. comic book Heroes, yeah. which is mm -hmm. behind me on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Got that for Christmas. Must have been the year before or the year and a half before. So I knew all about these Golden Age characters. And so that's that's all I knew about it. And I had read enough to know that, you know, these number ones would be valuable. So I also got an issue of Superman. That's where I start my official collecting. And so over that summer and into the fall, I was buying a few more every month, a few more every month. Should I start buying this title? This title is on issue 75. Should I start buying this title? This issue is, oh, but I like this character. I'll buy this character. So I was buying Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, because I got number one. But it took me almost a year later till I started buying Amazing. <laughs> of course, I could read my friend Russell's. He he was a subscriber to Amazing. I could read his copies. When I would go to the newsstands, and uh, I bet you guys remember this, every little store you saw, you had to check it out. Do they have comics here? Mm -hmm. Oh, a variety store. They have comics? I remember seeing the titles, Batman Family and Superman Family, and first just being dismissive, wondering, what what does this mean? What what is a fam what is Superman doesn't have a family? <laughs> Batman doesn't have a family. What is I don't want to buy this stuff. Besides, they cost more than a regular comic. I'm not gonna buy these until I saw this issue. This is spring of 1977. I'm still 12 years old. Best time to read comics. Jim Aparo made me buy this comic. <laughs> oh, that's it. Like the most important thing. Somewhere in the ensuing previous Eight or, eight or so months, I had got a copy of Batman from the 30s to the 70s. Ah, oh, oh, yeah. I wasn't even buying Batman or Detective Comics yet, but I had that book and I read that book and I loved that book. I have since lost that book. Somebody after 1989 walked away with it and was <laughs> showing off my bat knowledge. But I read that one so much and I especially loved the Neil Adams drawn Man Bat story in that book. So when I saw this cover with the character Man Bat, okay, that's worth paying 60 cents to get this issue. I got to buy it. Batman Family from then on was a comic that I really, really liked, especially once it became a dollar comic. Then it was a must buy. As we get into it, we'll talk about these individual stories. I hope to remember to bring up the elements of why this book grabbed me, why this concept grabbed me, and why Bob Rosakis is the most underrated comic book writer in superhero history. <laughs> that is a great secret origin. You mentioned the cover. I'll just give the stats on the issue, and then we can jump right into the cover and talk about it. This, as Terry said, this is issue number 12 of Batman Family. It is cover dated July, August of 1977. came out April 21st, 1977, according to Mike's Amazing World. 48 pages. But it is now 60 cents, a price increase from last month. We were at 50 cents. But there are three all new stories in there. As Terry mentioned, the cover is by Jim Aparo. If you don't mind, Terry, just give us a description, your description of the cover, why it might have appealed to 12 year old Terry, and then we can have a uh, talk about it. At the top of the comic, behind the logo in all uh, the, uh, the trade dress, is a nice blue background which fades into a light lavender behind it. But coming from the left, into the center of this image is Robin on his Robin cycle. Below that, Batgirl running sort of at a downhill angle from left to right. And they're just about in the center of the image. On the right side of the page, their target is a woman standing over Man Bat who looks to be in absolute agony on yeah. the ground. This look <laughs> of intense pain. 
pain and distress on his face. But among the things that really make this image pop, the woman who was holding Manbeth with a flashlight, all she has is a flashlight <laughs> and Manbeth can't move. She's leaning away from the heroes coming from the left. So she's leaning toward the right in the image. Her legs are spread and she's holding the flashlight right down on Manbeth. Behind her is a silhouette of uh, pine trees, some some conifers, and a full moon above them. And there's a, a slope of the tree silhouettes toward the center of the image. So Robin is coming down left to right. The tree line is going down right to left. So they're sort of meeting right in the center of the image. The eye is wonderfully drawn right in the middle. Grass, which is not colored green, it's sort of a grayish color because it's nighttime as evidenced by the full moon. Everything just works with this cover. The speed lines of Robin, his cape, Batgirl's cape and her hair flowing as they're moving so quickly. It's just a terrific cover. I don't have anything else to add to that. <laughs> Sean, anything you want to add about the cover? Listening to Terry talk about the cover, it was almost like listening to a Power Records. So I think that was phenomenal. So <laughs> thank you for that. That was amazing. The only and other thing I want to say... <laughs> the only other thing I want to say is this is a perfect example of how you don't have to use boxes on a cover. Technically, I guess you could argue that the three heroes aren't in this story together. So is it misleading? Maybe. Technically, although... That's certainly remedied next issue. Not that you necessarily know it from here. <laughs> but I love that it's not boxes of each individual story, that it's all together. I mean, Terry, you just sort of fantastic job talking about this cover. Like, I wholeheartedly agree with everything. Every day, in and out brilliance of Julie Schwartz to get stuff like this done. All the titles he was cranking out. we got three characters in this book. They're not in the same story. Try to figure out a way to put them all together. And they're recognizable. Brand new reader, me, who barely knows one of these characters, has only seen one story with this character, knows who this character is. Robin is recognizable. Batgirl is recognizable. It's, it's a lot of these great, iconic visual elements that really have been jettisoned by the big superhero companies over the last couple of decades. Well, and you don't even have to have, like a lot of times nowadays, they, they contort bodies to make sure you can see like the chest emblem. And yeah. neither Robin or Batgirl, you can really see their chest emblem, but you're absolutely right. They're immediately recognizable. It's because Robin has a yellow cape and green gloves. Batgirl has that blue cape and long red hair with mm -hmm. the yellow boots and gloves. That's really all you need. And we will post the image of this magnificent cover, as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul, remind our listeners where that is. That is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. So let's go ahead and jump into that first story, Sean. Our first story is I Am Batgirl's Brother, starring Batgirl. It's 10 pages, and the writer is Bob Rosakis. The penciler is Jose Delbo, and the inker is Vince Coletta. It was later reprinted in Batgirl, the Bronze Age Omnibus Volume 2 hardcover from 2019. That guy just stole an aeroplane. This never happens to Cassandra Kane. Not a lot's going on. I will never know. My brother just wrote me a letter. <laughs> a lot and a little happen in the story. We get a huge info dump at the start of the story about Tony Gordon, who, if he hadn't been ID'd as being introduced in World's Finest Number 51, I would have sworn had been created for this issue. He was a spy balloonist trying to uncover Chinese secrets captured, and then escaped, but had to keep his survival a secret, which means he never attended any Gordon family reunion. 
Tony writes Babs a letter telling her that whilst, that was for Martin Gray, working at the Smithsonian, Tony saw her and then Batgirl when she went into action to try and stop Captain Arrow from stealing the spirit of St. Louis, which I will probably call the Spruce Goose. She stopped Captain Arrow by punching him out. That's it. She blacks out. Tony rescues her. Tony then burns the letter that he wrote since he can't reveal his secret. The end. For real. That's the end. Terry, what did you think of the story? <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> I love the story on, yes, on a nostalgia level because I was 12 when I read it. But even now, I like this story because it's a great narrative technique. Who's telling the story? One person who knows this story. I was intrigued right away. Just the title, I am Batgirl's brother. This is a continual point of view of Tony Gordon. As the narrator, instead of having an omniscient narrator, 10 minutes later, Batgirl is walking down the alleyway. We have his point of view saying, I was able to follow you, and I guess you probably were thinking something along the lines like this. It gives us a real sense of a person. And I find this Tony Gordon person fascinating. A spy, a real undercover spy. So dangerous that he cannot acknowledge his existence and the government has to keep everything. Imagine that. Imagine if you're a family member. Imagine being able to not contact your family. That's a real torture. The story itself, uh, the adventure, is very slight. Don't even think twice about how someone steals anything from... <laughs> <laughs> the Smithsonian Institution. <laughs> Never mind aircraft. But I did enjoy thinking about how did he do that? He was sneaking in every night and putting in fuel furtively. <laughs> <laughs> he was moving stanchions very subtly every day to clear a path. <laughs> but that's in a lot of these stories of this time, especially with Bob Rosakis. Bob Haney, too. Let's get right to the action. Let's not worry about little details. Oh, it's a big crime. A guy steals an airplane. No, guy steals the airplane. He steals the spirit of St. Louis. How? Does it matter? Just, just get to it. This is not a crime procedural. We're not going to spend the whole movie watching as they make a plan to rob the bank. No, just rob the bank. Get the airplane. Get it out of there. So then, because that's a kind of a slight story, that's why the whole hook on the story is the narration. Is Tony Gordon telling the story and then tony gordon possibly vanishing although we know better it's cool once again we've got the theme of family right mm -hmm. we've been yes. working that through you know whether it's the family you have or the family you make and that's been a consistent theme it's weird stealing the planes but as we've said many times the best part of this is the interpersonal issues got to go with it and it's great i do think it's funny after not seeing babs for 10 years he immediately recognizes her as batgirl sean do you have any preliminary thoughts before we step through a little bit I do. Maybe like five minutes ago, I would have given this story a three or a four. <laughs> but after hearing the two of you guys talk, it's definitely elevated to at least a six or a seven. You guys have added depth of perception about this story that I didn't have. So I'm glad I'm listening to this podcast. <laughs> it's really it's good for me. It's yeah. made me like this comic. <laughs> Think about it this way, too, as the writer's point of view. I know there are some big shot writers. I don't know any contemporary writers. And by contemporary, I mean since 1986 who get a lot of praise and internet chatter about they found this obscure character and did this wonderful thing with it. Yeah, but lots of writers were doing that. Bob Rosakis did that. Where did he read World's Finest number? 51, yeah. 51. He wasn't reading comics then. He came across it while working as an editorial assistant. Walks into the library and opens the book. I love it. <laughs> There's a Tony Gordon. He appeared in a story. How can I bring him back? Well, I can bring him back anyway, but why? 
hasn't he come back? What hook can we put on this story? He went on a balloon trip. Where, where is he going? Why didn't he say, did he come back and say, great trip, dad, and now I'm going to become a banker? No. <laughs> so we get this great backstory. It's a little bit of international intrigue with a goofy Batgirl story. But Batgirl does fine. She's uh, getting right to it and trying to solve this why some guy is stealing airplanes from the Smithsonian Institution. I like to imagine Bob Rosakis and E. Nelson Bridwell sitting in the office with their encyclopedic knowledge of the DC universe at the time. And Bridwell says, well, you know, Babs Gordon had a brother. And he's like, what? I said, yeah, back in World's Finest. Go look in the library. And Bob runs into the library. They pull it out. They read the story. And they're like, okay. You know, I just, I like to imagine that kind of activity in the office back then. Yeah, I did too. What you think of the art? I really like the art. I do too. I think Jose Dubbo draws some very attractive ladies. He does. And he's got a nice pacing to the story as well with his angles and the way the panels are cut. This is a great piece on story page number four, Babs Gordon and one of her friends are in an inset panel as the larger panel behind them is yep. Babs and her two friends in action. And then below that, we see Tony back into the story with a diagonal angle panel of a plane crashing through glass. And then Batgirl coming in the bottom of the next page. The next page is my favorite with that fan layout. Yeah, it's a fan layout with angular panels, triangular panels. There's a sense of motion and flow. And I'll definitely put that page in the gallery because that's really a neat page the way that it flows like a fan. Yeah, it goes on the next page as well. And on page number seven, as I just noticed this just a few minutes ago, there's a nice inset of Tony Gordon in the panel. He has no thought balloon. He has no dialogue balloon. He has no caption panel. But clearly, he is looking looking around the corner to see what Batgirl is doing. Yep. It's acknowledging to the reader that this person is seeing what's happening. This person is not involved because he's our narrator. And that's a nice little artistic touch to show that our narrator is watching what's happening. Because without that little insert, Tony is not on the next three pages. But we know he's seeing it. Exactly. Oh, you know, I just noticed he's the, the previous page. We have his narration, his letter writing. And then we have three solid pages of Batgirl action with no letter writing from Tony telling us what happens. But with that little inset panel, we know that Tony's watching all that's happening. Then he gets out of the way and we can see what we want to see. We want to see a superhero, superheroine, beat the bad guy and save the day. And of course, there's when Babs brings the plane to a stop right up against the building and then bam, she hits her head. Yeah. Tony runs up on the next page and she's like, Tony, is that you? Again, she hasn't seen him for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I will say that is a nice touch because if she just spotted him in a crowd or something like that, she would be more inclined to believe in herself that she spotted him and knew it was him versus right. this where she was concussed. But hearing his voice. Yeah. He doesn't look like he used to look like, but he probably sounds exactly the same. Oh, yeah. And she yeah. would remember that. Because remember, what is... Even though Batgirl does not have any superpowers, what special skill does she have? An eidetic memory. There you go. With the vocabulary word. Good for you. I couldn't come up with it. I always say photographic, and I know that's not right, and I can't remember. <laughs> eidetic? Is that right? Yeah. Eidetic. Yeah. Yeah. She remembers everything. Yeah. So she can remember the sound of her brother's voice, as well as what his eyes look like, despite him having a beard and glasses. That's an excellent point. Yeah, I'm not doubting Babs for a moment here. I am going to be super nitpicky. I absolutely believe you can write a letter if someone has done you wrong or you have certain feelings and you don't want to send it. You know, you can burn it. You can rip it up. But would you really waste an envelope? 
by addressing it and a stamp and a stamp yeah and then burp that's my that issue was maybe 18 cents there that's my issue with it well maybe it's something tony's working with his therapist about <laughs> tony has never been able to successfully complete anything couldn't complete the balloon flight he couldn't complete the spy mission so the therapist is telling him finished it write the letter and address the envelope and put it in the envelope and put a stamp on it. It also is a great visual and it's a not a shock ending, but it's almost an O. Henry end. It's a classic turn at the end. Poignant. Yeah, it is poignant. We come in, the reader says the title, I am Batgirl's brother. We get to hear about Batgirl's brother. We spend nine pages with Batgirl's brother telling us a story. And then on page 10, he says, and Batgirl will never know. You'll never see her again. He's never going to see Commissioner Gordon again. It's really heartbreaking. And the nice thing is it kind of sets the table for down the road that he certainly could come back in some way shape or fashion or something like that yeah and when he did return it wasn't in batman family you guys know this story i'm talking about i don't in adventure comics in a superboy story and because i had read this story when i saw that story i was so excited when i figured Ooh. out who the character was. i don't want to give too much away because it's a great little another little twist ending it's the post dollar comics superboy no pre-dollar comic it's oh it's a pre-dollar aquaman yeah. the first Superboy story of the second time around. I see. Okay. okay, yeah, okay. I read these things so closely. I really consider myself fortunate as a comic book fan to start reading when I did. I learned, especially with DC, so much so fast that a lot of my questions are answered. It's very hard to find information back then. I remember going to the library, trying to find, read anything they had about under comic books, comma, strips, comma, etc. There wasn't much. Almost a year, I was wondering, why did Alan, Scott, and Jay Garrick change their names and their costumes? Because mm. this is not the Flash and Green Lantern I know. <laughs> <laughs> but then when I bought my first issue of Justice League, it was a crossover. Oh, okay. Perfect sense. There's several Earths. No problem. And you needed like one panel to understand. Earth That's one all I needed. Earth Thank you very much. <laughs> now, it all makes perfect sense. It still <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. Before we do move on, though, I want to take this time to talk about Jose Delbo for the Bat Family History segment. I love your Bat Histories. Oh, well, thank you. And been a lot of this one I lifted from the Lambiac Comicpedia, and I'll have the links to all these places in the show notes. But Jose Delbo was born in 1933 as Jose Maria Del Space, capital B-O, so Del Space B-O, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He grew up reading mainly American superhero comics, but they were translated into uh, Argentinian magazines. His first published story as artist, 16 years old, in 1949, science fiction tale in something called Clement's Suspenso. He worked for several years for Argentinian publications, and he drew a feature about a pilot called Terry Atlas for the Western comic book Pancho Negro. And in 1962, he started drawing a lot of detective and sci-fi features. But he then, due to political instability, decided to move to Brazil in 63 and came to the U.S. two years later. He spent the next 30 years living in the great state of New Jersey. And in 1976, became an American citizen. Shortly after his arrival, Delbo did advertising assignments until fellow Argentinian cartoonist Luis Dominguez introduced him to Charlton Comics. So Delbo picked up his favorite genre again, Westerns. He spent the next eight years 
1966 to 1974, drawing Charlton's Billy the Kid. Dubbo also contributed occasional short stories to the anthology titles like Ghostly Tales and The Many Ghosts of Dr. Graves. And since Charlton was notorious for its low-budget practices, he also freelanced for other companies. He did the short-lived Tower Comics title, Fight the Enemy. It only went three issues. He drew the feature secret agent Mike Manley. By 67, he had begun a collaboration with Dell Comics, where his long association with TV and movie tie-in comics began. Because of his previous experience with war and westerns, the first Dell books Double worked on were issues of Hogan's Heroes, number five. And then he did three issues of the World War II series, The Rat Patrol, before landing on a long stint on, Sean, get ready, The Monkees. <laughs> he took over after the first issue and penciled the entire run until the end of that run. In an interview in uh, Comic Book Artist, Dubbo noted that he particularly liked doing The Monkees as he could add little fun elements to his artwork that more serious comic book art wouldn't allow. And in 1969, following the death of former President Dwight Eisenhower, Jose was the artist of the comic biography, The Life Story of a Great American, Dwight D. Eisenhower, which I thought was interesting. For Gold Key, he's best remembered for the adaption of The Yellow Submarine, adaption of the Beatles animated movie. He was commissioned to draw an entire story based on a film he hadn't seen yet. And so the Gold Key comic book has a bunch of scenes in it that were not in the movie. Finally, we get to DC and his first work there appeared in The Spectre, number 10. And then he became best known as the artist of Wonder Woman with issue number 222. 1976 and drew that series until 286 so that's 60 some issues 1981 sean and you and i've talked about how due to the tv show it switched to world war ii and then it switched back to the contemporary 70s his other work includes batman family as we see here as well as the eventual batgirl strip that appears in detective comics when batman family moves over there he illustrated three stories of whatever happened to jimmy olsen and superman family his final major work for dc was a brief run on world's finest but then he also was on newspaper comics. 1979, he ghosted for Cy Barry on Lee Falk's character, The Phantom. And then in 1982, he was assigned the Superman strip, that the one that spun out of the world's greatest superheroes, and continued on this strip until it finished in 1985. Then in the mid-80s, Jose Delbo made the switch from DC to Marvel where he returned to making comic books based on popular TV stories. He replaced Jim Mooney as the penciler of the Thundercats and continued to work on that series with Jerry Conway till 1988. And then for three years, he also illustrated the Transformers. So got all that? This guy's been around. And in addition, Delville taught at some place called the Joe Kubert School from the 1990s till 2005. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, but I think... Somebody from the Fire and Water Network might have gone there. You know what? I'll be back in a sec. I'm going to go look for him. He's got to be right over behind the Hall of Justice in the Fire and Water Network headquarters. Let's see. Where is he? Looking for Rob. Hey, oh, there he is. Hey, Rob. How are you doing? Thanks for um, coming to the reunion today. But um, what is that you're eating? Uh, oh, no. I uh, I brought uh, I brought a Slurpee with me uh, <laughs> oh, to the good. reunion. I There's more over on the table there. I I thought about bringing some weird vegetarian thing, but I was like, no, everyone loves Slurpee. So if you go over to that other table, you look in the cooler. I brought Slurpees for everybody at the reunion. Awesome. Awesome. I'll take some back to the guys. So, hey, hey, Rob, I don't want to interrupt you slurping, but, you know, we were just talking about Jose Delbo, who (gasps) I have it on good authority. You may know. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I can't say that I know him. I did have him as an instructor during my second year at the Joe Kubert School. Uh, many of you don't know that I attended the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art. And he was my uh, he was my instructor for second year. And I had a um, 
a less than positive experience <laughs> with him. And and I will I've told this story before on other shows and it doesn't paint me in the greatest light, but I'm here. Uh, I'm just happy to be on Batman Family Reunion. So when I got there, I was familiar with Jose and his work was not a huge fan of it particularly. I will, I'll talk about that in a second. But anyway, the thing that really, it was nice enough, but the thing that really put me off was one week we had an assignment and it was to pick a favorite book and take three passages from that favorite book and illustrate them in a spot illustration style as if they would be going into the book, huh, cool. which is fun assignment, right? Okay, yeah. cool. So you just pick three random pieces and then we're pretending they would be inserted into this book. So I picked Shane, the the original book, Shane. I made it, you know, the famous movie from the 50s, mm -hmm. but I read the book. The book is terrific. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I picked three moments. And the first one I picked was the description of Shane, where it talks about the little boy who's essentially the narrator is talking about this stranger that enters the town. Mm. And I decided I thought it would be interesting as the first time you see Shane, you don't see him at all. And you do, you do, I did a, um, a downshot as if the camera is way up in the sky and you see a guy and you don't see his face because he's got his cowboy hat on. I see. Okay. But you see arms, you know, and legs astride the horse through the desert. And I thought that was a nice, clever, evocative way of bringing Shane into the book without really showing his face. Well, Jose did not agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I did the sketches and Jose was like, no, change that. You got to show him. And I was like, well, why do you have to show? Him? Why? Why do I have to show him? Why? Why can't it be a little more mysterious? And he's like, that's not what that's not what you should do. And I was really like, I don't agree with that. I, it's not this is not a hard and fast rule. Again, I was 19. I thought I knew everything. <laughs> and I was a little like, well, who are you? You know, like, who are you? You're, you're like a hack. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. I was a little, I didn't say that to him, but I, that's definitely what I was feeling. So I just, it was a little like, like Vince Coletta telling me how to change. It. I was like, well, where are you to tell me that? So I did not change it. And I moved on to the inking process and I finished the piece and turned it in. And he gave me a failing grade. Ooh. on the assignment Ouch. now i didn't get many failing grades in cross three years but i got a couple and i was really offended at that because he was saying it was objectively wrong mm. and i'm like it's art it can't be objectively wrong if i drew shane with maybe three heads <laughs> that might be objectively wrong <laughs> but choosing one angle to do it from is not objectively wrong. i will say i let my anger get the best of me and i never really engaged with him again for the rest of the year i did my assignments but i kind of like i did the, i was early quiet quitting you know where i just kind of <laughs> did them to the minimum of what he asked for and i never really engaged with him again and in retrospect I regret that because he had a comic book career of a, for many decades. Mm -hmm. He would have been great to talk to and learn the business from and get stories from. But I blew past all that because I was so mad and I stayed mad up until the end of the year. And I didn't have him for third year. So that story has traveled with me throughout the decades of like, oh, Jose Del, blah, blah, blah. Now, I will say now I've learned that the reason I didn't like a lot of his work is because over the years, I think he's been paired with a lot of let's say, indifferent inkers. And I don't think that's done a lot of service to his pencils. And I have seen his pencils when someone really took their time on in the inks and they're really good. And his layouts are really good. His figure drawing is really good. So he was a lot better than I thought he was when I was 19. But I will say the stuff I saw at 19, 
was just kind of inked by people that I didn't really like. So that's my story about Jose Telbo. Hey, reunions are all about reconnecting and <laughs> and trying to get families back together. So if Jose ever shows up, I'll make sure to bring him over and get back together with you. He will not remember me, but but that'll be fun. <laughs> well, listen, Rob, thank you. Go back to your Slurpee. Appreciate the little guest shot here in the Bat Family history. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Again, thanks to Rob Kelly, Network co-founder and all-star for stopping by the reunion. Those Slurpees are great. I got to walk back over to Sean and Ward. Where are they? Oh, here they are. Hey, guys, I brought you back some Slurpees that Rob got for you guys to enjoy while I finish up real quick on Jose Delbo. Yeah, I got a Legion cup. Yeah, well, sorry, but that's what he was giving away, right? He went... <laughs> so real quick to finish up, by the mid-90s, he had relocated to Boca Raton, Florida, where he's done a work for all kinds of other publishers, Valiant Comics, Shadow Man, Techno Comics, Mickey Splains, Mike Danger. He worked for Neil Gaiman's Mr. Hero, the new Matic Man, which I hadn't even heard of. And he did Disney comics, including issues of The Little Mermaid and The Mighty Ducks, Sean. All right. And he taught a cartoon camp program for school-age children. So finally, on March 8th of 2021, so just over a year and a half ago, Jose Delbo made news when he sold a set of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, of Wonder Woman for $1.85 million during a crypto auction. I remember reading about this. After that notable sale, DC and Marvel issued statements about copyrighted characters and the artwork. It's one thing to sell a print at a convention, another thing to make $1.85 million, which is why they're both <laughs> into NFTs now. But Jose made out pretty well. Good for him. Yeah, so a pretty interesting guy, despite what Rob says. He had an interesting career, <laughs> worked all over the place. Most of his Charlton credits don't show up on Mike's Amazing World, nor the newspaper work, of course. But he does show for DC and Marvel 234 story credits, 3,600 pages. Doesn't have a ton of covers. Most are most of them are Wonder Woman with a handful of World's Finest and Transformers. So thanks for letting me take the time to talk about him. It's funny. So a little behind the scenes. So we Zoom these meetings and I always think that our guest must think I'm so rude to Paul because when he's telling these stories on the screen, it looks like I'm just like looking down. <laughs> but I have my iPad here. So I always try to find like the images that Paul talks about. So I put in like, Jose Delbo cover art. I see like a lot of the images that he sees. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, I know that cover. I know that cover. I know that cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember Jose's brought in a Wonder Woman. Jose Delbo's art is fine. It's perfectly serviceable. Nothing special. I never thought. But frankly, and unfortunately, what I mostly remember is him being saddled by so many not good enough inkers. And that's exactly the point, as you heard Rob make a few minutes ago. He wasn't served well by Joe Giella or especially Jack Abel in those those days. And it's really hard to look at those Wonder Woman stories. This is nicely done. This is a very finely done story. Yeah, yeah. Well served by Vince Coletta here. All right, let's move on, guys. We have to get to our first break segment, The Bat Timeline. So in this segment, we're going to take a look at the other titles that DC and Marvel and all the other publishers published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. So thanks, as always, to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. If you're looking at the newsstand feature, we are in April 1977. Sean and I will run down the Bat books real quick, and then we're going to talk about what else we bought. So the first one up is Batman number 289, Batman versus the Skull. I don't recall this story very well, but wow, what a great Mike Grell cover. This was a period of time where Mike Grell was on Batman, and he's literally in the hands of the skull guy on the cover, and the copy promises a spine-chilling shocker. The next book is The Brave and the Bold, number 135, and it is More Than Human, and that stars Batman and the Metal Man. I always liked 
the metal men. I never loved them. I don't know that they've ever had like a great, great showcase, like a great series for themselves or anything. But I, I always thought they were cool. Did you buy Brave and the Bold, Terry? Oh yeah. I bought both of those issues. Nothing that I ever reread, but I, I remember that Batman story. The villain's name was Skull Dugger. <laughs> And at that point, I had not heard the word skullduggery. I didn't get it. Why is this guy called Skull? But the gimmick was he had some sort of device or beam, and the victims have this little skull imprint on their forehead or something like that. <laughs> and the Metal Men story, Haney was always sticking them in the brave and the bold. That was one of those stories that had this villainess, this industrial titan named Ruby Ryder. I don't know why I remember this stuff because I only had a couple dozen comics back then. I reread them and reread them and reread them. Yep. Any other bat books this month, Sean? So there's no detective comics this month, but Batman is in Justice League of America number 144. Yeah. And, and I literally <laughs> cannot tell you all of the... P people think our episodes are long now. If I read every single one of these Death Stars, we would ask be me, here. Ask me. <laughs> we would be here until 2025. So if you're familiar with the Justice League house ad that has Plastic Man and Rex the Wonder Dog, the Blackhawks, Vigilante, that's this issue. And I've never read this issue, but isn't it some kind of <gasps> super secret origin of Justice Sean, League or you something? Must wow, read Sean, you got to read this. This oh, is great fantastic. stuff. Fantastic! Remember I said earlier about how I was learning so much about DC in a quick time? This is one of those stories. Justice League at that time was a giant-sized. Bob Rosakis was the editorial assistant, because I remember... As soon as it went big, there was a special extra letters page and a fake letter from Bob to Julia Schwartz, the editor, saying, with this extra size, let's run a feature called Justice League 100 Issues Ago. So every month, I was finding out not only what the Justice League were up to that month, that great Steve Englehart run, but what was happening 100 issues ago. So I was getting a lot of other background. This story, The Secret Origin of the Justice League, Englehart does a brilliant comic book thing. He looked at the cover dates of some stories that happened in the 50s. And the editorial footnote from Schwartz was, superheroes have a way of stopping the clock so they don't age. So good. Let's ignore <laughs> the real world considerations, the comic book convention, and look at, okay, if Green Arrow's in a story, in this month of 1958 and Superman is in a story in this month of 1958 when do they meet for the Brave and the Bold for the Justice League stories? It's a great little bit. This story involves almost everybody that DC was publishing at the time. And this cover, there's a blurb saying that there's 30 heroes in the book there are at least 21 22 characters on this cover <laughs> it oh. is jam packed Dylan was a master. And he drew them to sort of look like how they looked back then. No yellow oval around Batman's bat, a much younger Robin. So yeah, go go read that story. Everybody, go read that story. Especially if you read New Frontier. This is the inspiration for New Frontier. That does it. No other Bat books. I mean, again, amazing. Batman's in three comics this month besides Batman Family. But Ward, do you want to go first and tell us what else was on your nascent pull list at the time? I went through this list. I bought 20 of these comics. So <laughs> I had a paper route. So I had some money. So here we go. Action, Adventure, All-Star, Avengers, Batman, Batman Family, Black Lightning, Brave and the Bold, Flash, Freedom Fighters, Iron Man. I had to get Iron Man. I never bought Iron Man before, but look at that Jim Starlin cover. How can you not buy that? Justice League, Return of the New Gods. I got that was sucker for that. I got hooked on the advertising for that stuff. Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, because I was buying that since number one. Superman, of course. Superman Family. 
Tarzan and Wonder Woman. Oh, I forgot to mention something else that had happened just recently in April of 1977. Sometime in the preceding three months, my dad took me to my first comic book show at oh, a nearby wow. hotel. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, indeed. All these dealers and the long boxes and all that stuff. Because why I remember when it was, my father was still alive. He died December of 1977. So I remember that's a nice one a thing that my dad did with me. That is wonderful to remember. And also, I got that issue of Superman early. So before it was on the stand, I got the end of that Marty Pasco Superman story. That's what wow. freaked me out. How can these comics exist? They're not on sale yet. Wow, very cool. <laughs> and I got a Batman giant size because it had the origin of Robin. And that is the only major character at that point that I didn't know their origin story. That's awesome. That's fantastic. And that's why I bought the Tarzan. That I didn't buy Tarzan. I wasn't interested in Tarzan. It was Tarzan's origin. And that's why I bought it. I'm a sucker for first issues and origin stories. We've repeated a lot of stories. Yeah, so I have Action Comics 473, and that's The Great Phantom Peril, and it's Superman versus the Phantom Zone villains. Adventure Comics number 452, and that is Dark Destiny, Deadly Dreams. And that's the death of Aqua Baby. Where Aquaman is down on the ground, and Aqualad has the Triton, and he's about to spear him in the face and chest. Again, Jim Aparo making us buy comics. Yeah. yeah. That's a great cover. My beloved Justice Society of America and All-Star Comics, number 67, Attack of the Underlord. That's a fantastic story. I think that's the first Joe Staten story. I had missed a couple of All-Stars. So when I saw this, I grabbed it. That was my first fandom. Looks like it's his second, actually. He definitely is the penciler. I'm not sure if it's the first one, but yeah. It was my first to see because it was unusual. It's not the Wallywood inks that I expected to see. Yeah, it's Joe Staten with Bob Layton on inks. Yeah, my favorite combination. The next one I didn't have at the time, but it's Avengers number 161, Beware the Ant-Man. And it is a fantastic Perez cover where Ant-Man is growing in size and punching out two heroes at once. And everyone is covered in ants. Oh, it's, it's a fantastic cover. When I was on the George Perez tribute episode a few months ago, this is one of the covers I picked as an early example. Of, let's just say Scarlet Witch was quite fetching despite being covered by ants in this uh, image. <laughs> My next pick is Secret Society of Supervillains number eight. And this one's really cool because that has Kid Flash literally running rings around Gorilla God. So that's good. Yeah. My next one is Shazam number 30. And I love Shazam Captain Marvel. This one, he's squaring off against Superman and Captain Marvel fights the Man of Steel. Now my next one, I'm going to brag a little bit. So this is Spidey Super Stories number 24. There are three different stories and Thundra is one of the guest stars but i am bragging because we were just at baltimore comic-con back in october and i was able to find the fireside paperback collection of spidey super stories and the story is in there and i'm no, very very yeah. happy about that because it's so nice. so hard to find nice the next one is superman number 313 and the story is called the only way you'll save the earth is over my dead body. And I'm totally picking it for the costumed character on the front, which is a <laughs> fantastic outfit that I would love to see a cosplayer do. Almost tie rock in a way. <laughs> Although actually, let me pull that paper back up. It's almost like a golden pharaoh. Isn't the golden pharaoh the superpowers figure? Yeah, well, it's definitely a costume that Mike Grell would have liked to have yeah. done. <laughs> and then my last pick is Superman Family number 184. Beloved Superman Family. 
You have Supergirl, Jimmy Olsen, Crypto, Lois Lane, Nightwing and Flamebird, and Superman, and the prankster is on the cover. I got a couple things to add. You know, I bought a lot of those, but one thing that I did buy that neither of you mentioned was DC Superstars number 15. I was not a war comic buyer, but I actually bought mm. this one because I love these new, and this was like a Jeanette Kahn influence, I think. These new stories and these DC Superstars and these books coming out, and it's got Sergeant Rock and the Unknown Soldier and Mademoiselle Marie all in one story, and I remember that today. That's a great one. We had FF number 184, another yeah. George Perez outing. Great stuff. Written by Len Wein. If you look at Flash number 251, it's got a very interesting angle. The cover's by Rich Buckler. You're looking right at Iris's butt as Flash is racing to save her. You can see his anguish. She's being shot by what's her name? The Golden, Golden Glider. Glider. Golden, yeah, Glider. Golden Glider. And Flash is like, oh no, I can't save the woman I love. Marvel Tales 81, okay, if you look at that, that's reprinting Spidey in the Savage Land. And that probably would have been my first exposure to the Savage Land. Right next to that, Marvel Team-Up has Spider-Man and the Yellow Jacket and the Wasp. This is sort of the height of the Claremont and Byrne Marvel Team-Up. I missed that. I would have bought that because I, and I remember reading up that it had happened, but I never saw those, those two, that was a two-part. I never saw either of them. Yeah, a great two-parter for sure. Off the path here, I look at Ripley's Believe It or Not. So I like to try to find these ones. I didn't have this one. Two children stumble into King Arthur's court. It's really got an interesting <laughs> looking cover. Kids coming out around the corner and there's King Arthur and Guinevere sitting there and as you like to say Sean I'm sure I would have been disappointed with the story but the cover <laughs> is kind of neat and then neither of you guys happened to mention the little thing called Star Wars number one I wish I could say I bought this off the stands but I did not this was out before the movie right I did have the two treasuries which were adapted into the first six issues and then I started buying the title so I already had those stories then I started buying the title with number seven and bought every issue after that yeah Star Wars number one with that iconic cover by Howard Chaikin. And then stopping in with Underdog, number 13, never underestimate the power of a pun on a cover. So Underdog is getting, I don't know, sprayed by a giant <laughs> seltzer bottle by the bad guy. And he says, Underdog gets a physical. <laughs> and for some reason, the bad guy's standing on a treadmill. So I don't know what's going on. And then you mentioned Wonder Woman. Unfortunately, has Don Heck art on the inside because the cover by Gray Morrow oh my God, is cover. unbelievable. Wonder yeah. Woman, again, this is the World War II Wonder Woman. She's being chomped by some monster. And all we see is the monster's teeth that are chomping on Wonder Woman and two evil looking eyes on either side, which was unbelievable. All black background. All guess. black background. Great, great cover. And Sean, what's the count? Our listeners would think that Star Wars is the big draw this month. No, 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 no. Ten Richie Rich titles yeah. are the draw of this month. Thank you, Richie Rich, for getting me sucked into comic books in the first place. <laughs> All right, let's move on before we have a four-hour podcast. The second story starring Man Bat called Dread Night of the Jaguar by our friend Bob Rosakis with art by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. No slouches. Reprinted in the Best of DC Digest number 51 from 1984. Kirk and Francine Langstrom are enjoying a night out at a free concert in Central Park when a jaguar crashes the party. As the crowd panics, Kirk flashes his abs, pops a pill, and transforms into Man Bat. He picks up the escaped animal and tosses it across the park, knocking it out. But then his animal instinct, or as I like to call it, his man batty sense, <laughs> kicks in, giving him advance notice of a crime across town. It is the Sunset Gang, and Kirk is excited about the potential reward for four of them. Turns out they had set the Jaguar free as a distraction. One of the gang members thinks she has man bat cornered with a flashlight 
Nothing happens when she shines the light on him and she exclaims, but Mr. O guaranteed it would work. But before Kirk could corral her, the Jaguar returns and chomps him on the leg. This time, when the flashlight shines on him, he turns into a were-Jaguar. Yeah. Or as Julie Schwartz likes to point out in the footnote, is otherwise known as an Uturunku from South American legend. Uturunku. That'll be on a test later. Running on animal instinct, for real this time, Kirk is mistaken by the police as the escaped Jaguar. They pursue him, and Kirk theorizes that the impending sunrise will change him back, if only he could survive that long. He takes refuge under a bridge in the shade as the sun comes up, but the police are surrounding him and preparing to shoot to kill. He takes a plunge and dies into the sunlight, and thankfully is transformed back into Man Bat just in time. He picks up Francine to take her home, but the questions remain. What happens when the sun comes down again? And who is the mysterious O behind the Sunset Gang? We will have to wait for next issue to find out. Sean, Terry, what did you think of Dread Knight of the Jaguar? Let's start with you, Terry. I love this story. Listen to Sean in the previous podcast with Martin. I'm Team Sean. I'm Team Manbat. Why did I buy this comic? Manbat was on the cover. This story is so fun. It is so well done. Marshall Rogers was still trying to find his way. I think there's a big leap in his style, not his style, his his skills from the previous issue to this story. He's showing a much better command of the character. There's a great flow. All the images. The layouts are Austin's great. Inks, oh, the, the sound effects, the layouts, the inks, everything is terrific. The pacing of the story is so tidy. Everything is really crisp. This is why I love Bob Rosakis. He could really do it. He could do a four-page story. He could do an 18-page story and give you all the information you need. You think, the okay, there's a Jaguar. He takes care of the Jaguar. Then he becomes the Ware Jaguar. What a great idea. A Ware Jaguar. I don't care if Julia Schwartz made this up. (laughs) (laughs) Look how cool that is. Look how beautifully that's drawn. That's so wonderful. I don't care that the shafts of sunlight are streaming down as if it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't care about that. That is little niggling details. This story made me a Kirk Langstrom fan. I have since read subsequent man bad stories, but this is my Kirk Langstrom. This is my man bad, especially as the series progresses, what Bob Rosakis does with him when Michael Golden draws him, when Don Newton draws him, becomes man bat private eye. I love all that stuff. Kirk and Francine were terrific characters. They're struggling to get by. It's a tough time for them. They're in love with each other. We don't need domestic drama. We need domestic stability. And I love that. There was other dramas happening. And because this is the first man-bat story I read, so to speak, I fully accepted this whole idea of the homing instinct. Sure. If, you know, if some guy gets bit by a spider can get it. Yeah, that's right. A guy who, who makes himself into a bat can get it too. Sure. Why not? Right. <laughs> it all works. And look how well it's drawn. It makes perfect sense because it's drawn so perfectly <laughs> with the little ping, ping, pings. Yeah. Ping, 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 and the sonar and everything. It's gotta awesome. give Because you got to give Mambat something else. Otherwise, he's just you know, an ugly thing flying around. Why, why is he flying around? Okay. He needs a reason to get in, go into action. Sean, general thoughts? Probably no surprise. Like, I love this story. Beautiful. Like, you could just study each panel for an hour, and it's so fantastic. And like you were saying, visually, you could say he's he almost looks like Hawkman, bare chest with wings, that kind of thing. But he's so distinct because of his facial feature mm-hmm. and the huge ears on the side. You hear about like street level crime and that kind of thing. Francine and Kirk are like street level people. 
Yes. You know, they're going to a free concert in Central Park because that's what they can afford. Exactly. I love that. This setting it in New York and having it look like New York. Now, at this time, I had never been to New York. At this time, it was always a dream to go to New York City. But when I went to New York City, and I don't know if it was the first time, but the first time I was ever in Central Park, I totally remember Kirk being in one of the little alcoves, I don't know, like the <laughs> underbridge or whatever you call it. Like, I totally yes. remember. And when I was walking through, I'm like, oh my God, this is where Kirk hung out until he could get to a sunlight beam. I definitely am not the first person to talk about how beautiful Marshall Rogers' art is. But I mean, I don't think you can say it enough. Just everything about this. I cannot fault this story at all. You know, I love that it dangles out the thread of Mr. O and what's going to happen. To me, in my mind, reading this, oh, well, he got the sunbeam, now that's it. But then that little panel, what will happen to Kirk, man, that Langstrom, next time the sun goes down, what didn't even occur to me, that might happen again. Yeah. So even yeah. just that little word panel yeah, that was cool. opens up a whole new avenue of storytelling. Sean, I love how you said that this story lodged itself in your brain. I had the same thing because I read the Marvel tales where Green Goblin killed Gwen Stacy. So the first time I drove down over the George Washington bridge <laughs> that's what i thought yeah. even though i know that was not the bridge drawn in the comic but this comic also launched itself this story launched itself in my brain for about 20 years i worked at the museum of science and for the last six years there one of the presentations i did was in the theater of electricity i got to make lightning at the museum of science. great job as i was explaining electromagnetism one of the gimmicks i had was a flashlight the flashlight was a specially constructed flashlight. The shaft of the flashlight was made of clear acrylics. So you could see inside. Inside was a magnet. And as one shook the flashlight, by moving the magnet, you can move electric charge through the wires in the flashlight to the light on the end of the flashlight. So I could demonstrate to the audience that this is a magnet, and then I'd have a visitor shake it to make the flashlight. And I would shine it into everybody's eyes. They could see this thing was making flashlight. Now, while I'm saying my patter, how by moving the magnet, we can move electric charges. In my head, I'm thinking again with the dumb flashlight that man bad says to the sunset <laughs> gang here. Every time I pick up that flashlight, I'm thinking man bad. And I can <laughs> never explain that to anyone. Well, we get it. You get it because you've read this story. We're a part of the family. This is what we're all here for to let all this out. I think I actually might have something quote unquote negative to say about this story. This will be the last time I kind of flog this. The art in here is so beautiful. The other two stories do, I think, suffer by comparison. <laughs> yeah, the detail that Austin puts in here with the foliage, with all those trees. Take a look at page five and six. Oh, yeah. The faces. and The faces, but the background is suggestive. Yeah. There's just enough, but most of them don't have a lot of detail in the background. Then the next two pages, pages seven and eight, holy mackerel. Now he's starting to draw almost every branch and leaf of the tree to, to heighten the tension and to show off the wear jaguar's spotted body, that wonderful orange color jaguar spots on him. It's just fantastic stuff. So I have a couple points I want to make. My favorite page is page three, where Kirk throws the jaguar, knocks it out, goes back to Francine, and she gives him a big hug, like, oh, you were so sensational. And then, then he looks up, just like Spider-Man would. I almost expect to see his face split in half with a spidey sense <laughs> on the one side. And, the, and then... The best part, he grabs his wife with his feet by the shoulders, his pregnant wife, 
okay, and flies her through the air and drops her off at a hotel to say, you sit here while I go off. I laughed out loud when I read that again a couple of weeks ago. He can't use his arms. He's going to flap his wings. I know. He's going to flap his arms to fly. But his feet are like prehensile, so he grabs yeah, her they're and huge. flies her off, and he's like, well, you'll be safe here. After he just flew her through the skies of New York. I just think that's hysterical. The only thing that I don't like is that Man Bat picked up the Jaguar by its tail. That really upsets me. <laughs> that's valid. Actually, another nice little bit I noticed reading this again for the millionth time today. Francine is pregnant. Even though Kirk says it, Marshall is not making a big point of it. However, if you look very carefully, you will see that she is showing. Yep, a little bit. Yep, and the, it's not really until the very last page that we see how big she is. But again, yeah. they're not making a big deal about it. She's looking cute in her overalls. Yep. So I didn't get, maybe you guys can explain it, when he gets turned into the Jaguar, he can't control his body. I didn't understand the narrative purpose of it either. He would run away from the police anyway. No, he wouldn't. He tries to talk to them. He says that. Maybe I can tell them who I am. Oh, this just body can't speak. Yeah, he does say that. I get he can't talk. It's okay. a great narrative device. He has to keep moving. He's on the run. Why is he on the run? Because he can't tell anybody who he is. All right, I'll take that. In terms of art, the last thing I'll say, Page nine, the close up of the Wear Jaguar. Woo! Yeah. What, oh. a, what a fabulous, fabulous page. That's Isn't the page. That what a black light poster of that. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to move on, Sean? Absolutely. Oh, you want to stick with Man Bat. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah I, I could live in this story. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, just actually one more thing. I, sure. I As the series progresses, and I can't wait to hear you guys talk about the subsequent stories. There's a nice little bit when Kirk Langstrom is suspected of being a villain, and the person doing the investigating goes to the apartment to talk to Francine about that, and she offers him a cup of tea. And she says, can I offer you a cup of tea? I'm sorry, we can't afford coffee. And this was at a time of great inflation. But I remember there's a sudden spike in coffee prices. It's a great little touch. It's another little touch that Rosakis throws in. Oh, you give us a hint for the Gabriel's horn when that issue comes around. <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> Batman family stories of Man Bat are terrific. I agree. I would love to see this Man Bat again. He's a hard luck hero, but he's but not not moaning about it like Peter Park. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we are going to go over to Bat Branding. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the non-story pages in this issue. And I'm going to start off with a beloved Twinkie ad, and it's Green Lantern and half the people here, and literally. All of the people in the stadium are half themselves. Sean, I enjoy the Twinkies ads, but this one had me in hysterics. <laughs> You're the connoisseur of the Twinkie ads. I just go over the flow, but this one is hysterical. Every person is drawn in half except the villain. And the nice thing is you don't want this to be anatomically correct. It's just gray. Like yeah. wh where they're cut is just gray. Like you don't see the internal organs or anything like that. So that's that's wonderful. Thank goodness Green Lantern's half that was kept was his right side. I was going to say that, the side with the right. It's, exactly. Yeah. Everybody's right side. Everybody. And I think this is a Neil Adams drawn. If it's not Neil himself, it is continuity associates. It's, yeah. it's It really yeah, looks absolutely. like Adam. I'm thinking Neil might have done that guy's face. Yeah, but even the hands look like they have Adam's line work on. And the best thing is the villain is defeated because he cut everything in half. So he only gets half of the Twinkie amount <laughs> that, he's, that he's fed. Ah. So that's why he changes everyone back. I love that part. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> 
if Martin ever becomes a villain, we're never going to stop him. (laughs) I know. (laughs) The next ad is, at last, you can fly Superman. And it's for the Sky Heroes brand of toys from Mark's Toys. It's Superman. It almost looks like he's on a kite. So you can visualize that with a hook at the very top. And you see a kid with a rubber band shooting him up into the sky. Now, I never had these as a kid. I would have loved to have had these. I would imagine it's like stiffer cardboard. Terry, did you have it? I didn't have this either. But this looks like it might have been like a paper airplane but so mm. i almost think it's maybe like a plastic oh maybe it's plastic oh it could be yeah down at the bottom the heroes that they have are superman batman spider-man and captain america and i guess marvel heroes don't fly yeah you have three classic flying heroes <laughs> batman <laughs> spider-man and captain america now the super great thing is as of this recording i looked it up on ebay and they have a batman and a superman sky heroes they are so affordable batman is 124 dollars <laughs> with ten dollars shipping you laugh okay so that is a little bit much so superman is only a hundred dollars with eight dollars shipping wow and you were going to corner the market on these things so people wouldn't buy them out from under you sean well that's why i looked today before we recorded this <laughs> thinking what well, oh let me look and i'm thinking no have at it back cousins bring it to the reunion <laughs> Moving on. The next one is after the Man Bat story, we get a two-page Batman's Bureau of Missing Villains starring Clayface 1 and Clayface 2. Very cool. The first one is obviously Basil Carlo and the second one's Matt Hagen. These were cut and paste jobs and I gotta think Bob Rosakis might have done it himself right in the production. Very likely, yeah. It points out that Basil Carlo was first introduced only two months after Robin's debut. Note the commentary in the first panel about Julie Matt Madison, which I thought was neat. The second guy is Matt Hagen, as we know, and mentions Detective 298, 304, 312, and a whole bunch of others. Clayface 3 does debut about a year later. I looked up, it's about a year later yeah. in Detective 478 by Len Wein and Marshall Rogers. So I thought this was a really neat addition. It's like I said, it's all cut and paste from different stories, which was pretty cool. You even got Brainiac. I didn't know Clayface teamed up with Brainiac. I'd have to, I'd have to go read that story. World's Finest 144. What'd you guys think of these two pages? I love this. Again, this is learning so much so fast about the history of DC characters. So it's cool to see this stuff. Like, And I've been reading Batman 30s to the 70s. I don't think there are any Clayface stories in that collection. Someone stole my books. I'm going to check. But it wasn't one of the stories that sticks in my head. So this is cool to find out. And I love the 1940s drawing more than I like the 1950s and 60s drawings. At this time, I never knew that there was more than one Clayface. The Basil Carlo, I didn't know about him at all. And I'm not sure about the timeline. So Clayface was on the Filmation Batman cartoon. But I don't know if I had seen that by this one or not. I'm not sure. The best job, obviously, on the animated series where they combined all these guys into one. I was just going to say, I'm not letting anyone in on a secret that like the Matt Hagen Batman animated series. That's fantastic. But yeah, these characters had not appeared for years and years and years. So it's cool to see something like this. Yep. So the next one is the greatest Batman thriller of the decade. Four classic Ra's al Ghul stories gathered into one giant novel. And that, of course, is limited collector's edition with Ra's Ra's al Ghul, and it is, oh my gosh, I have such vivid memories of this book. 
because this book legitimately kind of scared me. So there was this huge comic for $2 and on the front is Robin dead. Mm. And at the time, I didn't know that these were reprints. So I knew killing Robin was a big event. So I kind of thought this was all new and they really were killing Robin. They had to wait 15 years for that. So. Yeah, it's this huge <laughs> event. So a huge book. And of course, I thought they were going to kill him. And especially like the pain and anguish on Batman's face. This is one of the best Batman images you know, yeah. ever. And it's just oh, unbelievable. I remember reading this on my porch. It was May. It was summer. So warm. I was out on the porch reading it. And the story is fantastic. I still love the story. I still love the artwork. And I know Batman animated series did. I would love to have like a DCU animated movie of these four stories, mm. like all together. I, I would love that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I assume I saw this ad. I bought this off the stands. I read it over and over and over. And this is where I would have read those stories for the first time. I would argue this is on the Mount Rushmore of Treasuries uh, slash limited collected editions with Superman and Spider-Man and Superman and Ali and, mm -hmm. you know, my own personal favorite, maybe not the best, but my personal favorite is Batman and the Hulk. But this is seminal. Notice all those other ones were all new material. This was to have four issues combined into one story like that. Fantastic. Another one that I bought, but I lost. I have no idea whatever happened to this. How do you lose a treasury? I got a <laughs> box full of them over there. Well, hopefully they'll do one of those reprints of this one. Hey, Sean, you need any socks? <laughs> <laughs> As people who may know, I hate socks because it covers up the natural beauty of the foot. However, our next ad is a Heroes World ad. And normally I love Heroes World's ad. And I'm not saying that I hate this one, but it's not very super exciting. It's Batman with a grappling hook and the socks. I can't understand if- I don't know what's socks... happening with the socks, man. Come on, just say They're it. They're flying toward you. <laughs> are the socks coming out of Batman's <laughs> chest or are they going towards his- Is Sock Man like attacking <laughs> Batman with these socks? And then you have the amazing new bat plane. And I didn't look this up, but I bet it's like, it looks super cheap. Cousins, if you had this and love it, or cousins, if you had these socks and loved them, Please write in. And hey, I'd love the socks know. now. I'd wear them now. Okay. Sean would totally wear the Robin socks. Yeah. <laughs> He'd wear them as earrings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a couple pages later, you get super group excitement. Another one of these great house ads highlighting the Bunkers comic, the Secret Society of Supervillains. We talk about it every month. Again, this is the one where Kid Flash comes in. Return of the New Gods that you mentioned, Terry, mm. where that's the first New God story I would have bought. Me too. I knew no idea who these characters were. I don't think I got first issue special. I know I didn't have any of the Kirby's. I would have bought that. And then the Freedom Fighters, will the Crusaders replace the Freedom Fighters, which is awesome. The Crusaders being the invaders analogs, which I think is just super cool. The Captain America guy called the, what's he called? The Americommando or something? Americommando and Rusty. <laughs> Great supergroup excitement coming this month from DC Comics. I would really like to get the, I still don't have the Batwoman Freedom Fighters issue and I need to get that. I'm interested in the Freedom Fighters. I would like to get all of the run. It's the Rosakis combined universe. <laughs> Kathy Kane, Batwoman, shows up at the end of Freedom Fighters. Silver Ghost, who's the Freedom Fighters villain, shows up in Secret Society of Supervillains to rent some villains to fight the Freedom Fighters. <laughs> It flashes in it from Teen Titans. Yeah, he's tying his books together. I was there for it. Now we're going to move on to Batmail Family. And as always, we're inviting Kathleen O'Houlihan, Scott R. Taylor, Billy Matheny, D.B. Webb, Bob Rohde, Warren Morrison, Matt L. Holmes, and Craig Boldman. If you are listening to this, please come on to the podcast. We would love to have you because each of you have had a letter in 
the letter column. And so we're very jealous. Well, Sean, I suspect something. I yes. suspect that Kathleen O'Houlihan is really Lizanne Oswald because <laughs> talks about the mechanical costume difficulties that Babs must have hiding her long sleeve costume under the short sleeve shirt she was wearing. So Lizanne, you let us know if your pen name was Kathleen O'Houlihan. Impressive guess. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not going to talk about each and every letter, but that was one of the things I wanted to bring up. That's a great point. I always love the mechanics of costumes, mm -hmm. especially like when Robin would have the laces undone or something like that. I mm -hmm. always love to see that kind of stuff. The other thing I wanted to bring up is Bob Rohde, of course. We love his letters. He was prolific. He wrote a lot of letters. And the great thing he says, the very last paragraph is, but now that you've revived her, don't let Kathy Kane slip back into oblivion. She's no spring chicken, huh? That's no rationale. You could present a backup series of untold stories of Batwoman in her prime. Yes, 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 yes. And I understand why they probably wouldn't do that because I'm sure they were trying to get away from that era of the sprang props and that kind of Definitely. stuff. But still, I would have loved to have seen that. And a lot of the people say, now that you are having all new stories, how about all new stories with Batwoman? And of course, I agree with that. This letters page, again, the important part of my comics education. Since I had read the Batwoman stories that were reprinted in the 30s to the 70s book. I had no idea that she had appeared recently. And reading these letters tells me that this Batwoman is a character. She's still an extant character. And that was great to read about. Like the term skullduggery, I had not heard the phrase spring chicken. I didn't know what that <laughs> referred to. I didn't get it. You could have gone up to your mom and said, Mom, are you a spring chicken? <laughs> <laughs> so I had two other thoughts on the letters page before we go. I like at the very end, Craig Boldman asks, hey, let's rename Robin Robin Hood, which I thought was pretty funny. And then back to Kathleen, she makes an insightful comment about the relationship. Hey, they work together as a relationship when they're Batgirl and Robin. But when they're Dick and Babs, it doesn't work. That's when Dick more natural with Lori. So I thought that was an interesting perspective. All right. And last but not least, I'm just going to talk very briefly on the back cover. There's a Spalding Presents Streetball with Rick Barry and Dr. J. Now I know, Sean, you don't like sports, but when I was a kid, I thought this was cool. I did play basketball and I liked the 76ers growing up near Philadelphia and saw Dr. J play a few times and to see him on the back of a comic book, that was pretty neat. Drawn by Jack Davis. I was going to say, I can appreciate that because I used to read Mad Magazine at the time, yeah. Let's move on, Sean. You got story number three. Our third story is Rally Round Robin, starring Robin. 12 pages. The writer is Bob Rosakis. The penciler is Irv Novick. The inker is Vince Coletta, and this was reprinted in Robin, the Bronze Age Omnibus. Robin in Rally Round Robin. If you've ever been a fan of a huge star, you know, like a fan of George Clooney, Michael B. Jordan, Kylie Minogue, or your favorite podcasting team, you'll know that we live for our fans. Not so Robin, for he reads about an unplanned appearance of himself at the Hudson University gym and doesn't care. Unfortunately, at the time of his appearance, Dick and Laurie are in the library, go libraries, to do research for his finance two paper. Seeing some unusual activity outside, Dick goes into action as Robin. After rescuing three books from some ne'er-do-wells, whilst, that's for Martin Gray, showing off some acrobatic skills for the Robin Rooters, all in 20 minutes time, no less, Dick returns to Laurie to discuss dinner and dessert plans. <laughs> After midnight, when Dick returns to his pad, he receives a call from Barbara Gordon, who tells him about her magic motorcycle, which is then matched by his new bike. Of course, this is a trap and leads us directly into the greatest issue of Batman Family ever. Uh, uh, what did you guys think? First of all, I'm disagreeing about the greatest issue of Batman <laughs> Family ever. But I think this is a great story. This is terrific. And it's Irv Novick. When I 
bought this issue, I had already been buying Teen Titans and I was a Robin fan. I wanted to read more about Robin. Sean, you and I very much alike in that regard. I was intrigued by this Dick Grayson person. Now, he's not a little kid anymore. He's a man. He's doing these things, but he's still Robin. He looks great drawn by Irv Novick. I can't decide who's my favorite, Robin, Irv Novick or Jim Aparo, because they both did a great job with, with him. And so this is a fun story in the college milieu. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, I thought you were going to say again how, yet again, we've got books worth a fortune in the library. (laughs) Did they all end up in your library? (laughs) (laughs) As I have said before, we have first edition Shakespeare's on the shelf. (laughs) We're rife with that kind of material. What did you think of it, Paul? I think it's great. I love how he slips out and Lori's mad at him again, calling him Richard. She's turning into a little bit of a nag, but she's like, hey, you're going to run Wayne Enterprises someday, which I think is hysterical. She's hooking onto her gravy train and really wants to make sure he studies. <laughs> but this is great. I like the acrobatics. We'll get to it. But the best scene is when he does the behind the back batarang throw to, yes. to get the book. I mean, that was just badass, right? He's just walking away from the guy threatening to dunk the book in the pool, which I'm like, what is the guy going to do? How's he getting away? He's on the diving board, right? But Robin walks away, but without looking, throws the batarang back. Love the thought balloon there. Hey, I practiced this. Never thought I'd actually have to use it. But overall, terrific ending. Was like, whoa, I can't wait for that next issue. I missed the next issue. I had waited for a couple of years so oh, I could read it. You hurt my heart. Oh. Well, our listeners only have to wait one month. I have to wait less because I'm going to read it tonight. <laughs> All right. I didn't want to read ahead. I want to try to remember my old impressions from this story. I guess I never really noticed it until just right now talking. One thing about this story that I really like is it is similar to Kirk and Francine. And I'm not saying that Robin and Lori's relationship is on that level, but it is very street level. Like they are in college. They have to do term papers. How do you work a term paper around catching crooks? Well, you're in the library and therefore steal the valuable books. (laughs) (laughs) The college library in the college gymnasium. (laughs) Honestly, like I do love super villains and everything, but it is kind of neat that on a college campus, you would have this kind of level of crime Mm -hmm. that Dick would try to stop. And definitely they had set it up with the Aradne novel. So that was a super nice callback. Him specifically pointing out that he practiced this move. I love that. It's not a blockbuster story. I'm not going to say nothing happens or anything because it is. There's a lot of action. And even art-wise, we complain about Vince Coletta. But there are backgrounds where there are things in the backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there are no backgrounds where the action is happening fast. And this is the point I wanted to bring up. I know Vince Coletta comes in for a lot of crap from podcasters. I've never been a big fan of his style. I felt he watered down a lot of my favorite pencilers, but the man could do the work. And looking at this story in particular, when Dick and Lori are together in the library, he's not stinting on details. Actually, start in Dick's room because we can see Dick's stereo. There's a poster in the background. They go to the library. We can see there's books in front of them. There are books behind them. Here's the thing that's important. We don't need to know what record is on Dick's turntable or what that poster specifically is, just that it's there. We don't need to know what the titles are on the books on the shelves. There are a lot of artists in more recent vintage who get bogged down in those details. That's fair. That is not the point. These stories are not meant to be read panel to panel. Just get enough information visually as to what is going on. Well, yeah, and Lori looks fabulous. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Lizanne will say, but I like her suit. Hold up. I want to talk about that a second. When Robin goes into action, 
and he's running across the field and he's going into the gym. We don't need to see the background. We're in a gymnasium. Vince and Irv have drawn a suggestion of the rings, the parallel bars, the pommel horse, a suggestion of a crowd. That's all you need because we're not interested in those things anymore. We want to see Robin in action. So we get four images of Robin in one panel. We see him defeating the bad guy in two panels with no backgrounds because that's not the point. This happens within seconds. And so the eye has to go right across these panels without slowing down. And the same thing when he's at the climax with the fellow at the swimming pool. We don't need any background. We just need to see Robin do that awesome trick with the batarang and the rope and the suggestion of where the man is in space. So from mostly about the complaints about Coletta doing the erasing, he takes out what is not needed. But if you look at the next page, page 10, look at Lori's hair. Look at her uncle's hair there. His shirt, his collars appearing above his jacket. It's a pinstripe shirt. Vince doesn't need to draw those stripes in, but he does. Because now we can slow down and take a look who this person is. There's not a lot of action. When there are panels to take the time with, he does that. Next time someone complains about a Vince Coletta story, look at it much more closely. Fair point. Fair point. We'll send them your way. So you wanted to talk about Lori's outfit? Look at the colors. She's dressed as Joker's daughter. (laughs) (laughs) It's like how Bonnie and Clyde started a fashion trend. How Diane Keaton (laughs) with the men's outfits and the loosened ties. The same thing with Joker's daughter. So I don't know if she shows up again, but this girl, Margie Spratt on page seven, she is looking at Robin like she is into him. Let me tell you. She's like, I'd hope to see you and be lured here. I'm like, whoa. There's a great story in a few issues where they had to try the different Robin costumes up. I can't remember if this is the same. I I haven't read ahead. I haven't read them for years. No, this stuff I remember for the last 45 years. I wanted to pay attention when we get to that to see if that is her. See if it's still Margie. Yeah. Yeah. And then the ladies' man, Dick, although disappointing her by being away for 20 minutes and she's mad at him at first, he's like, oh, no, no, I've got these notes. It's all taken care of. She's like, oh, all right, let's go have dessert. <laughs> I love it. You never had to wait for someone for 20 minutes? <laughs> and the last thing I'll say about the art on this one is after Marshall Rogers, and this is to your point earlier, Sean, with all those fascinating, amazing layouts, this story is pretty much laid out in rectangles. Yeah. And so it is a little bit noticeable, despite we all love Irv Novik and his storytelling is great, but it's just not quite the same level. Hey, I have a question for you. Now, the first book that Robin picks up and he clobbers a crook is called Curtains for Achilles Pilot by Christine Ariandi. Clearly in Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot. But what about G. Stefan Cravat with his collection of holographs? That is what the guy on the diving board is holding. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Cravat's a tie, you know, an ascot, that kind of thing. Right. And he makes it a point to mention what he's got. Collection of holographs. Rosakis is working another level here. I was going to say, if you don't know the answer, I'm hoping that our bat cousins will be able to let us know. All right, guys, our last segment, we're going to take a trip to Gabriel's Horn. It is the hip hop and hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. And we are going to talk about the most 1970s moments in the issue from any of the stories. So, Terry, what do you have? You know what? There wasn't much in this book. A lot of these stories, they could happen today. They still do free concerts in Central Park. They're still Central That Park. was the best I came up with. I think that's when they started. Yeah, I think so. There's a great Simon and Garfunkel record from about that time, the reunion show. I had a couple of reaches, like there's a smoker in the lobby of the hotel and the man bat story. <laughs> good, good. Very good. Yeah. That's a good one. Of course, the telephones, they've all got landlines with the curly cords. And Dick does not have an answering service. <laughs> 
<laughs> Despite what Laurie says. And it took me the second time reading it to realize that was Babs calling him. Yeah. Duh. Because she's like, oh, I left a message on your machine before. <laughs> he has the turntable in his room. With oh, that. that's a good one. How about you, Sean? Uh, Sean's got a smile. That must mean he's got a good one. <laughs> You're going to hate my smile. Uh-oh. So, yes, the first page of the Robin story is a newspaper. Yeah. So, like, we kind of almost have to grandfather yep. newspapers, magazines, telephones, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So... Originally, like earlier this afternoon, I was going through page by page and it was tough. I kind of settled on Tony Gordon writing in cursive. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a great one. Yes. <laughs> Since they don't do that for kids. Now, we know the secret code of cursive, but if you ask an eight-year-old. My kids are all in their early mid-twenties and they barely taught them how to do cursive. They can't read it to this day. Now, I'm sure they don't teach it at all now. Uh, that is a great one, Sean. As you were talking about the man bat story on page three you see the back of francine's head and her hair is tied back by a piece of leather with the, yes, the stick with those going up and i didn't even pay attention oh to my it gosh you pointed that out that is the most 70s moment of the issue that is. now that's detail that's worth it wow sean i'm very impressed that's a really good one <laughs> but you just reminded me about the last page of man but something i wanted to bring up the guy who's smoking i think he's talking to marshall rogers and terry austin the tall guy i think is marshall rogers i don't know what terry austin looks like they both have artist portfolios as they walk away i don't know who that fellow is the fellow with the glasses might be julia schwartz you know that does look like julia schwartz i think you're right <laughs> So that wraps it up for this issue. We want to thank, so this is written that we want to thank our special guest, Ward Hill Turner, but absolutely from the heart. That is absolutely true because you have added so much insight. If only (laughs) making the Batgirl story better for me, and I'm sure other people listening probably have the same idea. Where can our Bat Cousins find you across the internet? Thank you for asking. I'm Ward Hill Terry on Facebook and on Twitter. But more importantly, I want to push my band, Stop Calling Me Frank. We have a Christmas single that'll be released by the time this podcast is out. The song is called Say It Ain't So Santa. It's on all major streaming platforms. It's CD Baby. Stop Calling Me Frank is the name of the band. The song is Say It Ain't So Santa on Rumbar Records. Give it a listen, please. Now, we are going to play a couple of podcast promos. And when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a land in there. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. The Fire and Water Podcast, celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available at Fire and Water Podcast, Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? It's bad enough. I have to put up with your shenanigans every... Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. 
While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Welcome back. Now we will read and respond to your listener feedback for episode 11, The Wedding of Batgirl and Robin Hits a Snafu. First up, we actually have another iTunes review, Sean. It's from KC Vidkid, who says, I'll bring the deviled eggs. I enjoy this podcast immensely. Why, thank you. Not only does it revolve around the clever play on words in the title, but also one of my favorite comic books as I was growing up. It's well-produced and hosted by two true fans who entertain me with their witty banner. Give it a listen. I'm always there. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks, KC Vidkid. Over to you, Mr. Witty Banter. <laughs> our bat cousin, Matthew Davis from Richmond, Virginia, wrote to us via our Gmail and said, Dear Long Lost Bat Cousins, I didn't know about your show until I read about it on the 13th Dimension website. And this is Sean talking. 13th Dimension is fantastic. After listening to the episode for issue number nine and especially the Bob Rosakis interview, I've been playing catch-up, or is it catch-up, with past reunions. What really got me was when I heard you say, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. name. I had to rewind to make sure of what I heard. JLGL, PBHN, was one of my favorite artists since the mid-1970s, and your holding him in such high esteem is a true sign of a quality podcast. <laughs> now, this is Sean interjecting. Yes, we absolutely love JLGL, but that original bit came from Rob and Shag. Yeah, we didn't invent that. <laughs> probably on Fire and Water. I, I, I don't I, even, it could have been even think, before that. I don't know. That's probably where I heard it. I don't think it was as late as Who's Who. I think it's their original show. Yeah, so we are proud to uphold that banner because, we, yeah, we love them. Back to Matthew. Please accept my apologies for arriving late. A large bowl of my mother's potato salad and my quickie Bat Fam origin story. My dad was in the U.S. Army, and we lived in Germany for three years in the early 1970s. I don't remember the 1960s Batman show on the Armed Forces TV station. Yes, singular, as in one channel. <laughs> but I soon found it after we returned to the States in December of 1975, with three major networks, a small scattering of independent stations, and no news anchors wearing U.S. military uniforms. After seeing the closing credits line, Based on characters appearing in DC Comics, my choice of comics soon changed from Harvey's, Gold Keys, and Marvel Westerns. Batman Family became an early favorite. Either issue number three or four was my intro, judging from the on-sale dates. Back then, the issues tended to linger on the racks longer than usual, especially in small-town Georgia. I did eventually find number one and number two at some point. Now, as to some other things you've mentioned on your wonderful shows of the past, no Turkey Hill convenience stores here in Richmond, Virginia, but their ice cream has a sizable presence in the Kroger frozen section. There you go. I don't know how far their reach extends, though. Their chocolate buttercup ice cream is my go-to. For me, it's the black raspberry ice cream, but I don't think they make that anywhere. The last couple of times I checked, it wasn't there. So this is back to Matthew. I had the $6 million man large action figure and the Evil Knievel stunt motorcycle. Between them, a Superman of a similar size, Stretch Armstrong, and two other lesser-known ones, Pulsar and Bullet Man. Ooh. I also had a nice little action figure, Justice League, in the 1970s. Do either of you remember those last two? 
Honestly, I had to look online to remember Pulsar's name. I know I still have the Superman and the $6 million man. The others disappeared into limbo years ago. Now, this is Sean. I've never heard of Pulsar. I'm not familiar with Pulsar either. I mean, I had the $6 million man. I said that in the show. Is Bullet Man the same as the comic book Bullet Man? I find it hard to believe that they make an action figure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I do too. But yeah, post a picture of that. And the nice little action figure Justice League, you said from the 70s. Is that the 60s? Those one color, were they from Marks? Like those really hard plastic ones? That's my guess. I don't know. So getting back to Matthew, dogs are the greatest creation on this earth. And I'm not just saying that because my life is ruled by three poodles and an Irish setter named Robin. Wow. Not named after the boy Wonder, but after Mork from Mork. <laughs> the most 70s things overall about this series may be one of two things. First, the bicentennial. That was everywhere at the time. Yeah. Second, mutilating comics for merchandise. <laughs> Can you imagine asking readers anytime after that to cut out an order form? or the banner at the top of the cover for a belt buckle? <laughs> in Bruce Wayne Loses Guardianship, Bruce asks Uncle George where he's been since Dick's parents died. He casually says, touring Europe, weren't able to return. Touring Europe in the middle of World War II. <laughs> and they had a year to get out between the invasion of Poland and Dick's parents' death. Not exactly the smartest of grifters. <laughs> like you guys, I swear I remember him being outed as a fraud and not Dick's uncle. Maybe it was a later story, Sean. You know, we Maybe. talked about that. Maybe it was a no, later like, story. And I think everyone has that memory of him not being the uncle. But I know, but no. There's one thing I'm surprised you didn't mention about Jeanette Kahn. She was a woman in charge of a major comic book publisher in the 1970s, at a time when women in business were usually in charge of pouring coffee. It might be a small thing, but you have to wonder about the impact this had on the generation and how we see women in positions of leadership. No, no question. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, no question. Seriously, though, thank you for this great trip down memory lane. I'm along for the ride. Now, who ate all the potato salad? Thanks a lot, Matthew. Thanks for your comments. Great letter. Thanks, Matthew. We're going to move on to the comments on this past episode 11 from the website. First up on the website, Martin Menza says... Another fantastic episode with my longtime online acquaintance, Martin Gray. I'm fairly certain that this was my first issue of my subscription to the title. I reread this one numerous times growing up. I thought the wedding outfits on the cover were amazing. I wish they had used them inside as well beyond the splash page. We agree. Mm -hmm. New solo man bat tale starting here was fun, as was that team up between Alfred and Jim Gordon. Thanks, Martin M. Bucky749 says, a great comic. And Sir Martin of Grey did a wonderful job. Cousin Jeremy is manning the fryer and making deep fried banana Twinkies with blueberry sauce. Since we heard Sir Martin was such a fan of them, I'm setting up the karaoke stage. We've got several people signed up. Siskoid singing American Made by the Walking Boot Travel Band. Me, Bucky749, singing the theme to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Shag singing Modern Day Tom Sawyer by Rush. Martin Gray and Jeremy singing Keep On Dancing punk version. Captain Entropy singing the theme from Have Gun, Will Travel. What song should I put you down for if you guys want to join in? So I love to sing. I feel sorry for those who have to hear how much I love, <laughs> how much I love to sing because I know I can't sing, but that doesn't stop me. So a couple of things about karaoke. My karaoke song probably would be Rock DJ 
by Robbie Williams, which people here probably don't know, but I absolutely love it. And it's like a Hatter song. People know I love Kylie Minogue, but you know, I, I, can't yeah, I was going to say, I thought you would pick the Kylie Minogue. <laughs> but also about karaoke. There's no way in the world I would ever go to karaoke and get up on a stage and sing. And not because I'm shy, because I am not shy at all, but I just know like I'm not a great singer. But the best kind of karaoke is if you are with friends years ago, and I mean like more than 10 years ago, I was at a Christmas party with work friends. And back then the cable channel had like karaoke that you would pull up on the, on the cable box. It was great because it started off that we would sing whatever song we wanted to. So I remember I sang Waiting for Tonight from Jennifer Lopez, <laughs> which I love that song. So as the night wore on, it got to be where someone else would assign you a song that you had never heard before and you had to <laughs> sing it. And someone assigned me like some like hard rock song, like, I, like some metal, thrash metal song, and I had to do it. So if you're going to do karaoke, do it that way, because that, that makes it so much fun. <laughs> and then Captain Entropy replied, great song choice, Bucky. Oh, and keep the kids away from that tree. Catwoman's potty mouth is going strong right now. So next up, we have Matthew Davis, who sent us that great email before, who is now commenting on episode number 11. Great episode, guys. Those wedding outfits were interesting in every sense of the word. When I was a kid reading this, when it first came out, I probably thought they were different in a cool way. Now they seem very much a product of the times. But I do agree, I'd love to see someone cosplay these outfits. So who did design these outfits? Jim Aparo or Kurt Swan? Paging Mr. Rosakis, it's interesting that the Robin Tux appeared around the time when fans were submitting new costume designs for him. I guess even the DC artists wanted to get in on the fun, huh? Okay, now this is Paul breaking in. Yesterday, I was actually doing research on the next issue, and there was a letter who asked this very question. So this question will be answered in the next episode of Batman Family Reunion. I'm not going to tell you. We will have an answer from the Batman family next issue. All right. I'm sure you guys have been to Washington, D.C., but for anyone who hasn't, a bit of geography. Ford's Theater is within sight and easy walking distance to the J. Edgar Hoover Building, the headquarters of the FBI, which opened a year or two before this story was published. Any backup from law enforcement that the dynamite duo needed wouldn't have been very far away. The Hard Rock Cafe is between the two landmarks, but probably didn't open until the 80s, so it wouldn't have been a venue for the wedding reception. <laughs> and the most 70 things this issue has to be Kirk Langstrom's hairy chest. <laughs> so again, welcome to the reunion, Matthew. Keep sticking around. Thanks for the comments. And I'll let Sean talk about the hairy chest, or not. <laughs> it's funny. I'm surprised I didn't notice it. But yeah, that, that is a great callback to the yep. 70s. Very Tom Selleck. Next up, Brian Shufo says, I ordered Sea Monkeys as a kid a few years after this issue, probably around 1981. I was still young enough to think they might resemble the pictures in the ad. <laughs> if my memory is correct, I received a small packet with instructions to add it to a jar of water. There were probably other instructions like adding salt, which I may or may not have followed. <laughs> After waiting an eternity, probably a few days, I was amazed to see nothing <laughs> except the contents of the packet at the bottom of the jar. Dumb hawk! <laughs> By the way, Shufo sounds like Shufo. My Twitter handle is at enemy of the shoe to help everyone remember. Winky face. We at the network will do our best to get that right, Brian. I will put a notice up on my bulletin board. <laughs> Next up, our bat cousin, Lizanne Oswalt, stopped by and she says, impressive podcast, most impressive. The cover is pretty cool. 
I still stand by the fact that their outfits looked like they were designed by Madame. And she posted a, a video of Madame with B. Arthur thrown in. In his outfit, Robin is almost wearing his Earth 2 costume. Chris Franklin must be happy. <laughs> the fight scene with Barbara is decent, though the crooks are not even smart enough to look on top of the roof. <laughs> still, it gives Barbara an opportunity to take them out. I'm guessing Robin, as the guy buying the assassins, had this place set up, so the trap door was probably put in there by Bruce Wayne. And the epilogue at the end was fine. After all, this is for kids. And she goes on, regarding Manbat, if Kirk is a scientist, could he get another job somewhere? Selling pharmaceuticals or something, at <laughs> least? Maybe the apartment is from his savings from his years as working as a scientist. Or perhaps he sold some scientific discoveries of his patents and whatnot. The Gordon and Alfred team-up was fine, but... It would have been better to see them fight crime and work together for real. I'm pretty sure that Gordon knows who Batman is, but he realizes that he can't let anyone else know that he knows. Or otherwise, you have to investigate. It's the same reason why, in the cartoon, Jim has to cut off Barbara from telling him she's Batgirl. Probable deniability and all. Thanks, Lizanne. Yeah, I don't remember that from the cartoon. Do you? Is that? From oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to remember that episode. I'll have to go back and rewatch the entire animated series now. Always recommended for everybody. <laughs> Next up, we have Network All-Star and our Bat Buddy, Chris Franklin, who says, Sorry to report that the lease on the former Nightcast picnic area is up. <laughs> Something to do with contractual violations in regards to Jim Aparo and Marshall Rogers. <laughs> Hey, Chris, I had nothing to do with those comments about Jim Aparo. That was my two Bat Cousins. But all kidding aside, Chris goes on and says, I can forgive these transgressions since the Bat Cousins, and Martin, of course, continue to praise the work of Kurt Swan, who did a really bang-up job on this lead story. General Iron Guts Kelly is probably not going to be as forgiving. Prepare for an Aparo-like atomic punch. <laughs> it was indeed nice to hear Martin's dulcet tones once again on the network. Great call on needing the mega-like figures from the figures toy company of Dick and Babs in their wedding attire. Love the action sequence with Batgirl in the car on pages 9 and 10, proving Kurt could bring the cinematic action. Credit where credit is due. That headshot of Babs in panel 2 of page 18. Growl! Vince could bring his years of romance comic expertise when he wanted to, and he sure did there. Too bad he probably did erase a lot of Swan's backgrounds throughout. This is definitely the proto-Marshall Rogers here, but I still love the dynamism he brought to the Man-Bat tale. I did always think it was weird that Man-Bat was basically a jobbing crime fighter. Why not just continue with his research at the museum? Did that make him too much like another winged hero with a museum job and a wife? You and Lizanne ought to get together and talk about that. Maybe you can write that story, Chris. <laughs> I love the Gordon Alfred story when I first read it in that wonderful Batman Family Digest. Great catch on the Barney Miller resemblance. Hal Linden would have made a great 70s and 80s Jim Gordon. Mm -hmm. I think there's an outside chance that that blow to Alfred's head may lead to something. Carl Potts' art is great. I wish he did more penciling in comics. Agree. As I recall, he did the layouts and Jim Lee did the finishes on those early Punisher War journals. That sounds right, Chris. After years of seeing that Heroes World ad, I saw the power shields in person at a toy show, and I was greatly disappointed. At least I didn't have to suffer through buyer's remorse like poor Sean. <laughs> Glad to see how much you guys enjoyed meeting and hanging out at the Baltimore Comic Con. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, we had a great time. We had lunch and walked around the cons, and it was great to finally meet each other in person. We had a terrific time. Thanks, Chris. Bat Cousin Brett Michael Young says, Hey, Bat Cousins. Sorry I'm late. I brought bologna sandwiches on Wonder Bread. Yeah, I mailed it in. Really weird Batgirl Robin story this month. Robin's middle school shop teacher disguise was a surprise. <laughs> Between that disguise and the theater full of mobsters, Kurt Swan has proven he has a real talent for drawing middle-aged men. <laughs> 
he would have been great comment. on a he would have been great on a book about a midwestern bowling team who fight crime i do like swan's storytelling here but unfortunately our old friend mr coletta sucks the life out of swan's most dynamic moments circling back to all the thugs in the theater not a good choice to be sitting in the front few rows for that wedding <laughs> finally the most 70s moment of the issue has to be the look of the wedding invitation come on maze Put together some nice typography and maybe a design element or two. How about some color? And what's the theme? These days, no self-respecting gun-for-hire criminal organization would be caught dead slapping together such a bland affair. There's not even a photographer. <laughs> so this is Sean interrupting. Hearing about the wedding colors, I have to say my wedding colors would be blush and bashful. And that is a call out to one of my all-time favorite movies. And I will let it up to the Bat Cousins to tell me what movie has blush and bashful as the wedding colors. Back to Brett Michael Young. I look forward to more adventures of Man Bat as he and his wife struggle to make ends meet in their 12-foot high ceiling multi-room Manhattan apartment. <laughs> The art was great, though. Roger's style works well with Manbat. The Alfred and Commissioner Gordon story was always good fun. Instead of faking a break-in and kicking Gordon in the face, maybe Alfred could have gotten him away from the false wall by asking him to cut up some vegetables in the kitchen for a crudité. And does anyone think Tom Powers was actually cool with Bruce bringing his wife to the mansion for a supposed photo shoot? <laughs> Finally, if you want to get Gordon and Alfred together, make it a buddy cop style story. They could get mixed up in a case showcasing Alfred's talents of disguise and Gordon's detective work. After the case is solved, they hoist a few bourbons at the bar and bring a couple of dames back to the mansion for cucumber sandwiches. What? No, I mean actual sandwiches. Okay, gotta go. Great Aunt Kathy is really into making TikTok videos, and I think she just broke a hip over by the seesaw. <laughs> Thanks, Brett. That was awesome. Tim Price drops by the reunion. Howdy, Bat Cousins. Such a great issue and discussion. I guess I'll just add that having Jim Aparo covers makes me really happy, and this one is such a winner. The wedding outfits are fantastic, the goons are menacing, and Robin's and Batgirl's faces are priceless. I love it. Till next time, I'll bring the seven-layer jello. Thanks, Tim. Bat Cousin Eric stops by the gardens to add, regarding the XTC music video that was inspired by the Steed and Peel Avengers, that was the video for The Mayor of Simpleton. And this is Sean. Yeah, so I went back and watched it. And I just love that song and the video is so cool. Uh, so I highly recommend that. And then he goes on to say, as a side note, this just reminded me of another 80s music video based on a classic TV series. See Those Eyes by Altered Images, which was inspired by The Prisoner, to which Martin Gray pipes in. And of course, XTC gave us Sergeant Rock is going to help me. Now we're going to switch over to our social media responses. We got Facebook likes and mentions and comments from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Brian Linton, Keith G. Baker, Mike Thomas, Clinton Robison, John Greiner, Paul Wildenberger, Terry O'Malley, Don Lindbergh, Herschel Mimas, and Michael Best. We also got a really great response, actually two responses from James Hickson. First, he said, great episode, and he's going to put our promo in the next tomb of ideas. So we really appreciate that. And then he also says, did you mention the fact that they do technically get married in the issue and nothing happens to undo it? <laughs> My no prize to that is it probably was a criminal. So he was probably faking it and he probably wasn't a real minister or, <laughs> or whatever that denomination was. <laughs> On Facebook, Michael Best said, 
I've always admired the two character logos in that Potts McLaughlin art tale of Commissioner Gordon and Alfred. I do not know if either logo ever resurfaced anywhere, as great as each of them are. I don't know. I'm going to put cousin Chris Franklin on the job because he has a great... uh, And Martin. He and Martin are great at logos. My guess is they probably never used those logos again, but they will correct me and tell me how wrong I am. If they did, it would probably be in Batman Family or Detective, so we'll we'll see them. But I, I don't recall. But hey, there's lots of things I don't recall. And then finally on Facebook, Michael Best wrote in and said... Regarding the 1981 DC Superheroes postcard book, the Robin and Batgirl graphic is reutilized for the postcard courtesy of Swan and Coletta. And it's the image of Robin holding Batgirl as she's kicking the criminals. And the retitled caption for the postcard is, hope this picks you up. Get well soon. (laughs) (laughs) I think all of us love to see reused art. Sure. Other places, because it's always neat to say, hey, I know where that's from. So going on to Twitter, we're going to start with likes and follows and retweets and all of that kind of thing. And as always, we're going to start off with our network bosses. And that, of course, is the Fire and Water Network, Irredeemable Shag, Firestorm Fan, Mountain Comics, For All Mankind SF, And Treasury Comics, curiously no Digest cast, which is the only show on the network I care at all about. Hmm. Liz Ann Oswald, Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast, Ranger Gord, Culture Wars Draft Dodger, Mike Deans, John Riley, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Ed Moore Jr., All Edinburgh Theater, Martin Gray, Siskoid, Tim Price, The Pod Crasher, Justin Steiner, Dean Hacker, Claire Hutchins, Jim Bow, Tall Tower, Roger Preeb, Keith G. Baker, and Anne. And on Twitter, we also got a really neat comment from Martin Gray, who posted the cover of Karate Kid number 14. And it's an image of a crystalline female figure in the middle. And she's holding Robin by the throat. Karate Kid is jumping down in and saying, if I strike, I'll shatter Iris into a million pieces. But if I don't, Robin dies. (laughs) And I had not familiar with this cover at all. I didn't know Robin guested. But Martin Gray says, Bob Rosakis, Robin, the 70s. This could be an extra episode. (laughs) To which I replied, slow your roll, Gray. We still have three more years till we need even more to talk about. As always, we really appreciate all your interactions online. A lot of times I'll check this at work and I just, it makes my day, makes me laugh, makes me giggle. Now, before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you are enjoying what you hear on this show or any other shows on the network, please consider becoming a Patreon. We are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost. And we promise we won't use any of the money you donate to take a cab from Central Park back to our apartment. (laughs) To find out how, Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and thanks. And before we leave, we just want to let everyone know Christmas is coming up. And obviously, like it's it's a super happy, fun time for a lot of people. And that's great. There are people who don't share that feeling. And if you don't share that feeling, 
that's completely fine. You know, your, your feelings are valid for whatever reason, your circumstances, your family, not necessarily Christmas, but there were new years where literally I stayed home because I didn't have any friends or anything like that for New Year's Eve. So there were times I felt down. Sometimes I would grab comics. Sometimes I would grab music. I like, if you are in that situation, if you feel you need help, please reach out to someone who can help you. You know, I work for a library. Go to your lo local library. They can probably put you in touch with someone who can help you if you are in that situation. If it's just a matter of not liking Christmas, that's fine. That's valid. Don't feel bad or ashamed about this. You know, everyone has different likes and interests. Some people love Kurt Swan. Some people love Jim Aparo. Some people don't. And we as a podcast network have to come together with those feelings. So please, if you have that feeling, reach out to someone, even if it's a stranger, don't put yourself through any misery when you could hopefully come through on that other side. That's a great sentiment, Sean. Now, the last Christmas thing that I want to talk about is, and Paul doesn't know this yet, I am a huge Christmas music fan. I absolutely love Christmas holiday music. It means so much to me. And back in the day, I used to make CD compilations for friends and family. And I did that for many, many years. And it wasn't just, you know, here's a disc. It had artwork. It had, you know, a tray liner, had the songs on the back, a message inside, all of that. Now, obviously, I can't give everyone who listens to the podcast a CD, but I thought I'd do the next best thing. So I created two playlists on YouTube. One of them has old favorites, and these are songs like Sleigh Ride, Silver Bells, Little Drummer Boy. These are all the songs that you know. Some of them are the standard version that you know. So I have Andy Williams, I have Carpenters, I have Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald, but there are a lot of new versions of the old songs that you haven't heard before, probably. So that one is the first one, that's old favorites. And then I also have a new treasures playlist. And that's full of songs that definitely in America were not very popular. They haven't caught on yet. In England, they are. So Martin, no complaining that you know these songs. Leona Lewis has a fantastic song called One More Sleep. And it never really caught on in America. Pet Shop Boys, it doesn't often snow at Christmas. Now there are some artists that you know, like Kelly Clarkson, Celine Dion. But I think there's going to be a lot of Christmas songs that you're not familiar with on the second playlist. And even even though these are YouTube playlists, it is more so just the song. It's not really like a video to sit and watch. It's more, you know, to listen to when you're baking your Christmas cookies or trimming the tree or wrapping the Christmas presents. This isn't necessarily just like a countdown of my favorite Christmas songs for two reasons. First of all, I could never ever narrow it down to 50. I could probably never narrow it down to 100 because I love Christmas songs that much. And also because otherwise it would be like 50 Christmas songs of Kylie Minogue and Vanessa Williams. And I definitely wanted more of a variety than just that. But we are going to post those links and hopefully you'll be able to hear the songs and fall in love with them the way I have. All right. Well, that'll do it for the feedback section and for episode 12. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we hope you will join us next month for the novel length adventure starring Robin, Batgirl, and Man Bat. We find out where they are heading on those bikes and who is the mysterious Mr. O. Oh.